If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Racial discrimination may seem antithetical to the idea of liberty, but the connection between these two foundational facets of the modern age is much more complex. The United States was a nation founded on the principle of freedom, but it was also a nation built on African slavery. The French Revolution, which sold itself on liberty, egality and fraternity, did not extend these ideals to those living in its Caribbean colonies. Professor Tyler Stovall unpacks these connections in his book, White Freedom, The Racial History of an Idea. The book has just been shortlisted for the Kundal History Prize, of which History Extra is a media partner. And I spoke to Tyler to find out more. So your book, White Freedom, it it looks at the interplay between racism and ideas of liberty in the emergence of the modern age. I think that freedom on the one hand and racial discrimination on the other um, are two ideas which I think seem to a lot of people quite antithetical. To one another. But you suggest that the picture here is actually a lot more complex. So can you start us off by explaining the connection that you draw between those two ideas? Yes. Uh, thank you very much for asking me this question, which is, I think, really crucial to my study. Um, in reading on what people have written about the rise of modern freedom, for example, uh, especially the United States and France, which are the two countries I focus on, but not only those two, Time and time again, I came across the idea that there was a basic contradiction between the the emphasis on freedom, on the one hand, between nations that really grounded themselves in the idea of freedom, and the fact that these nations also frequently practiced racist practices, Mm -hmm. that freedom had, had its own sort of difficult levels of interpretation. And at a certain point, I just decided that You know, if these things have existed together in common for centuries, at a certain point, they can't just be contradictory. There has to be something that brings them together. Otherwise, you wouldn't have this relationship. And so I began looking at, so what is it that unites ideas of freedom and ideas of race uh, in the modern world? How can you have countries that are both, um, as like the United States, champing its, itself, its revolution against the British as a revolution for freedom, and yet at the same time practicing slavery, in fact, uh, increasingly practicing slavery after it was independent from the British. Um, and I decided that freedom, the idea of freedom had to be seen as a racialized idea, mm-hmm. that freedom was not there for everybody, that it depended on who you were. And so it came really, really came down to the sentence Freedom is for whites. Whiteness is freedom and freedom is whiteness, right? And for the rest of the book, I really wanted to look at, okay, how have these two ideas related over time? Because I'm a historian, you know, on my chest is carved the words change over time. (laughs) Above all, I believe that things do not stay stay the same, but they change over time. And so what I was interested in was how how does this relationship change over time and also change from time 
to place. As I said, I focus on uh, the United States and France because, first of all, these are the countries I know best, um, but also because these are probably the two countries in the world that are most emphasizing the idea that their national identity is all about freedom. But I don't just focus on it. It seemed to me you also had to look at, at the United Kingdom, for example, and its relationship with the empire and how race played into that idea of freedom, because you had a situation where in the late 19th century, Britain was one of the most uh, liberal democracies in the world. It also had the biggest empire in the world. And then I was also interested in Nazi Germany, because it seems to me partly if you are looking at modern racism, you have to look at Nazism and fascism. And the ways in which the, the, the Nazi embrace of genocide and anti-Semitism also had links to its ideas of freedom, freedom as national freedom, the freedom of the nation by purging groups that were seen as not belonging to the nation. Mm-hmm. So um, those are, you know, that's sort of how I got started on it. I guess this is so resonant because freedom is such a evocative idea for many. I think, as you say, especially um, in the US where you are more than where I am in the UK, can you give us a sense of what freedom conjures up in the popular American mindset and whether you think that that is fair or accurate? Okay, well, let me take a, a current example. There is currently a whole debate about uh, uh, COVID-19 vaccination. And so you have a situation where vaccination has been proved time and time again to be effective in the spread against the spread of COVID, that vaccination saves lives. There is a powerful movement in the United States, especially in the more conservative parts of the United States, against vaccination, and the movement has taken the language of freedom, freedom for control of our own bodies, freedom to control ourselves, freedom to control control our own bodies, freedom to choose death if it comes down to it ultimately, right? Uh, And so that's just one contemporary example. All you have to do is look at, at, at American advertising, for example, as, you know, something that is replete with images of freedom. If you look at uh, ads for new cars, for example, you never see an ad for a new car that shows somebody stuck in traffic. What you see is somebody whizzing down the highway, free to travel wherever they want to travel. You know, the product empowers freedom. Mm -hmm. So in many different kinds of ways, you know, the, the, the narrative of freedom is absolutely central to at least American life. So I just wanted to dig down a bit more into this concept that you're putting forward of white freedom in the book, which, of course, is the book's title. So what exactly do you mean by white freedom as opposed to just freedom in general? Basically, the idea that in order to be truly free, you have to be white, that people people of color are not are not free in the same kinds of way. Mm -hmm. And that one of the ways that Americans are people who want to be Americans and come to America to be, to be Americans, achieve freedom, is in fact by achieving white status. Uh, this is why I really got into the whole study of the Statue of Liberty, because there's no monument in the United States, no monument in the world, probably, that more symbolizes the idea of freedom. And in the United States, it has often been seen as a monument that exemplified welcoming immigrants. I mean, that is how it's portrayed today, welcoming people to the United States. There's some issues with that. First of all, the the idea of the Statue of Liberty as a monument of freedom tends to hide the history of New York Harbor as being one of America's great slave ports in the years before the Civil War. So when you think about people coming to the New World through New York Harbor, many of those people came not in freedom, but in chains. 
And the Statue of Liberty completely hides that history, even though initially it was created by the French to precisely to celebrate the end of slavery in the United States with the Civil War. But it's also interesting to look at the whole idea of the Statue of Liberty as welcoming immigrants, because in many ways, in the late 19th century, the Statue of Liberty was seen by many as an anti-immigrant statue, as a symbol of rejection of immigrants. There were literally cartoons that showed the Statue of Liberty being, being attacked by dirty Italian immigrants, for example. And so one of the questions is, how do you get from that idea of the Statue of Liberty to a new idea of the Statue of Liberty is welcoming the immigrants? And what I argue is that what happens is basically the immigrants are, are increasingly seen as white, or they're more, more precisely, their children, the second generation, are seen as white. In the 1930s, for example, uh, 1920s, 1930s, when the Statue of Liberty really began to be seen as a pro-immigration statue, that was when uh, immigration was at a low ebb into the United States. Uh, very, sm very small numbers of immigrants coming in, in contrast to the years before the First World War. It was also the period when the children of the immigrants who had come at the beginning of the century were growing up speaking perfect American English, were growing up as white ethnics rather than immigrants, rather than dirty immigrants. And the Statue of Liberty could embrace those people because they had become white. In the introduction to your book, you also um, talk about the story of a different American building, the Capitol building, and attempts to, to commemorate the use of slave labor that was used to build that building. I wonder if you could share that anecdote with us, because I think it, it's a good illustration of your argument, really. Sure. Well, let me just point out, first of all, that my book actually came out two weeks after the, the invasion of the Capitol building on January 6th. And so one of my <laughs> first reactions on watching the TV that day was saying, so mm. tell me again how freedom is not for white people in America. What I looked at was the idea that there was um, historical research that by, the, by, by, by about the year 2000 revealed that much of the, the Capitol building had been built by slave labor. And so the Capitol building, which is often referred to as the Temple of Liberty, as a symbol of American freedom, owed its existence in part to slave labor. And so as this came out, people in Congress were deciding, OK, what can we do about this? How can we both acknowledge the existence of the slaves and of slave labor and at the same time really reaffirm that the, that the, the Capitol building was the Temple of Liberty? So they decided to pass, uh, they passed a resolution baptizing rebaptizing part of the, the, the Capitol building as Emancipation Hall. And one of the interesting things about this movement was it was completely bipartisan, about the, just about the only thing that was bipartisan in Washington, D.C. at the time. But both Republicans and Democrats strongly supported it. Uh, the Republican President Bush signed it. It was all very nice and good. And what struck me was that, on the one hand, this is a wonderful way of dealing with the legacy of slavery, but it's also a really contradictory way of dealing with because why would you call a building built by slaves Emancipation Hall? Um, how does this honor the people that were forced to build this building? Um, and if you really wanted to commemorate their memory, why not call it Slave Hall? Mm -hmm. And why was it absolutely impossible to think of doing that uh, in the political context? And again, a bipartisan political context. So that was the kind of thing that got me thinking, okay, why is it that America has such difficulty in integrating the history of slavery into the national narrative? Um, and how has that been integrated in the national narrative? And I would argue that one way it's been integrated has been by 
uh, in effect, emphasizing that freedom exists, but freedom is for white people because the slaves were not white. They therefore did not have a role to play in this national narrative. The stuff that we've talked about so far, we've shown that this obviously is still very much at play, but you take the story right back to its enlightenment foundations really um when when the concept of freedom became so important in the western world so something that i thought was really interesting um is that you you reveal that freedom hasn't always been seen as something positive can you explain certainly and i think that that still exists to this day i mean if you think of the idea I mean, let me choose a few words for example anarchism or anarchy mm-hmm. Freedom as destructive. I mean, when you think of anarchists, you think of a, you know, a sort of black bearded guy with a bomb getting ready to blow something up. And yet the definition of anarchy is ultimate freedom. I mean, there's the old light bulb joke. How many anarchists does it take to change a light bulb? All of them. Right. Because anarchists are the ultimate believers in personal freedom. Right. Or choose another word. Libertine. Libertine comes from the word liberty. But it means, ultimately, it means a person who's usually a man whose sexual liberty is destructive of others and ultimately self-destructive as well. So it's, it's a very bad thing to have. And one of the, the uh, things I explore in this book is the relationship between liberty and property. Um, because having property in many ways is seen as a precondition mm-hmm. of being free. Uh, And yet at the same time, in some ways, having property ties one down, uh, limits one's freedom. You know, if you have to if you have to pay a mortgage, for example, if you have to pay taxes, you're not quite as free as somebody who's you could simply pack up their tent in the morning and roll down the highway. Mm -hmm. Right. So the idea of freedom is a sort of paradoxical one. We like to say that freedom is something we all desire. And yet we do not really wish to build a society based on complete freedom. And one of the ways I look at this is my first chapter deals a lot with the history of childhood mm-hmm. and how you relate to the idea of children, because children are supposed to be taken care of. Children are not free at all. They're not supposed to be free. None of the qualities of freedom that exist in modern society, including, for example, the right to vote or the right to drink, apply to people under 18. Right. So there's this idea that you have to be in order to be free and that children are the best example of this. You have to be, in, a, in effect, trained into freedom and, and into a kind of limited kind of freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the book is called Savage Freedom. And my argument is that modern societies basically have to su- have to suppress savage freedom in order to create what is true freedom and liberal democracy. Um, and yet, you know, it sort of underscores the fact that the whole idea of freedom and liberal democracy is in many ways contradictory. So in the late 18th century, liberty was one of the central rallying cries of what we we now call the age of revolution. But what role did race play in those revolutionary ideals? Mm-hmm. Well, let me go back to the United States for a moment, because this has become a real issue in terms of studies of the American Revolution. Um, Partly it was raised, uh, what was it, uh, a couple of years ago by the 1619 Project, which, you Mm -hmm. know, celebrated the 400th anniversary of the arrivals of the first slaves of what was to become the United States. But that anniversary also uh, put into uh, discussion, okay, so what is the real origin of the American dream and how does slavery play a role in that? And to this day, you know, 
for, mo- for many historians of the American Revolution, one of the key issues is, okay, how do you square the idea of the birth of a free and independent nation with the idea that the nation continued to practice slavery, and in fact, in some ways, uh, extended the practice of slavery. Um, and some people have also argued that, in effect, the American Revolution was fought partly, at least, precisely pres- to preserve slavery, because the British had made notions, had made noises about emancipating slaves that fought for the British. And therefore, the only way Southern states, in particular, is what would they become Southern states, would agree to join the cause was if the Republicans, the, the, the fighters for American independence, agreed to preserve slavery once it was over. I mean, I think it, it's an interesting debate, but I think one of the things that tends to get left out of this debate is the perspective of the slaves themselves. You know, here's all this, this war breaking out, and what do they see as their role, and how do they see this? One of the things I've, I've argued that is, in effect, you have to reinterpret American history by saying that the American Revolution was also probably the second greatest series of slave revolts in American history, second only to the Civil War itself. Because the slaves, uh, and most of the founding fathers, as is well known, were also slave owners, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, so on and so forth. They saw this and they were not stupid. And they said, well, this is a chance for us to achieve freedom, especially when the, uh, the proclamation by Lord Dunmore basically said that. Now, you can, you, know, you can point out that the British rule was by no means... Uh, was often hypocritical, right? Uh, the British had no vested interest in freeing slavery. They certainly didn't free it in the rest of their empire for another four decades or so. But, you know, be that as it may, if you're working on a plantation and you hear rumors that somebody is proclaiming the idea that you might be free, why not take advantage of it? And so there were like tens of thousands of slaves that literally fled their plantations during the American Revolution trying to make it to British lives, or just trying to get away. Many of them ended up taking refuge in swamps throughout the United States and creating sort of free communities, uh, sort of like the kinds of communities that created in, created in Jamaica and other parts of the Caribbean of freed ex-slaves. So they saw this as an opportunity, but many also did fight for the British. Um, Americans tend to celebrate the history of Christmas addicts. One of the first uh, Americans killed in the war for American independence but probably at least four times the number of slaves who fought for the American revolutionaries fought for the British. And one of the questions, uh, which I think exists in America to this day, is, okay, so how do we commemorate? How do we mark the history of those slaves that, in in fighting for freedom, chose to fight for the British? Were they traitors? Were they heroes? How do you commemorate them? And this is it's funny that this is taking place right now when there is a whole second look at the whole history of commemoration of the Confederacy. Because Mm -hmm. for decades, it has not bothered anybody in the South that there are statues throughout the South built to honor traitors to the United States, people that fought for the Confederacy. Only very recently has that been called into question. Um, But here's another group of technically traitors to the United States. And how do you you honor them? And how do African-Americans like myself look at July 4th, 1776, look at the American Revolution and see ourselves and see our fight for liberty embodied in that, or do we not? How well do you think that America is doing at the moment in dealing with that contradiction and memorialising it? It is, I I think it's making slow progress. For example, until recently, Mississippi recently changed its state flag to get rid of the Confederate stars and bars from it. 
Okay. For a state like Mississippi, that Mississippi, that's a major step forward. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, there are still plenty of people that do not understand why this is so important. But I think all in all, America is making progress on this. But at the same time, it's still a very fraught issue. Um, how do we look at the American Revolution and how do we look at the role of slavery in it? Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's interesting. Only now have historians recently started to look at the relationship between World War II and the civil rights movement, to look at the fact that so many leaders of the civil rights movement, uh, at least male leaders, were World War II veterans. Uh, And people drew a direct connection between fighting overseas and then fighting at home for liberty. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. As you mentioned earlier, you've got kind of a comparative study going on here between primarily the United States and France. And I just wanted to ask you a bit about the the French um, comparison here. So the French Revolution and how that played out in particularly in France's Caribbean colonies, because of course the the policies of liberty, egality, fraternity were not extended there, were they? Uh they were and they weren't. Eventually they were. Eventually the, the, the French revolutionary government in its most radical phase, in its republican phase, uh, did declare freedom for the slaves. Uh, but let me backtrack a bit to talk about that, yeah. because I think one of the things that's important to emphasize is that the, the France, which was the land of the Enlightenment uh, par excellence of the 18th century, was also in many ways one of the greatest slaveholding nations on earth. Uh, the the colony of Saint-Domingue, which is, which is now Haiti, but was then known as Saint-Domingue, was the greatest slave colony in, in world history, basically. Something like, you know, of almost, almost as many slaves lived in Saint-Domingue as lived in the United States. Uh, it was certainly the most profitable slave colony in modern history, so that much of the profits, much of the profits that basically went to fuel the, the, the Salon Society of, of Enlightenment Paris came from Saint-Domingue. So I wanted just to emphasize just how important a slave economy and a slave society this was, how how important it was to France. Um, So in France, it's interesting because you have many different levels of the French Revolution. You have um, the Jacobins, you have the the, the Girondins, many other people that were sort of middle-class revolutionaries. And then you have the the Saint-Culottes, who were more sort of lower middle-class, more radical. It was the more radical phase of the revolution that ultimately called for the execution of King Louis XVI, for example. And it was also that radical phase of the revolution that uh, freed the slaves in Saint-Domingue, or I should say declared freedom for the slaves, because ultimately it was the slaves that freed themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the revolution began in 1791, in August 1791, and it was completely uh, uh, self-generated by the slaves themselves. Uh, in Saint-Domingue. There were other uh, French colonies in the Caribbean, Martinique and Guadeloupe, 
Martinique was occupied by the British for the entire war, so it was never affected. In Guadeloupe, you had a situation where uh, slaves were freed, and ultimately Napoleon reinstalled slavery as he, after he re reconquered Guadeloupe at the beginning of the 19th century. Napoleon also tried to reconquer Saint-Domingue and failed. So Saint-Domingue becomes the one example in modern world history, perhaps all of world history, of a successful slave revolt, one that creates a, a post-slave society. But um, it was seen as, you know, really beyond, <laughs> beyond the pale, so to speak. Um, and what is interesting is that historians of the age of revolution have gradually come around to the view that the ultimate example of revolution in this period was the Saint-Domingue Revolution, right? It was the one that went the farthest in taking people from lack of freedom to freedom. It should be seen as the centerpiece of the age of revolution, and yet it is not. Even today, by most historians, it is seen as a, 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 a disastrous episode, one that uh, ended up in dictatorship and poverty, so on and so forth. Um, that was not the way slaves uh, in the rest of the Atlantic world saw it at the time. There were lots of slaves who, saw, who took great inspiration from the revolution in Saint-Domingue, who, you know, in secret, of course, but in secret really praised the revolutionaries and saw this as something that they could aspire to. But um, Western powers, the United States, France, Britain, all saw this as a dangerous, dangerous example. And at one point, the, the French government managed to impose upon Saint-Domingue, the Saint-Domingue government, and effect reparations for French property seized by the Saint-Domingue revolutionaries, which when you think about it is just about the most incredibly obnoxious thing I can ever imagine. Um, because what these people were doing was freeing their own bodies from French rule. Those reparation payments lasted until 1947, uh, Saint-Domingue. And if you look at the, the, the history of modern Saint-Domingue and the, the struggles it had to go through economically, the reparations payments it had to pay every year to France are a major reason why it was not able to prosper. Tracking this story forward somewhat, um, you also identify similar tensions really at play when it comes to the world wars. Um, so, of course, the, there were huge amounts of non-white troops that were fighting under the, the banner of freedom. But the question that you ask is, but whose freedom? Sure. And I, I talk about this as somebody who's father was a veteran of World War II and his grandfather was a veteran of World War I. So, <laughs> so there's a bit of family history here. Um, let, let's start with World War I. You have a situation where um, all these imperial nations are going to war against each other. And in order to um, pursue the war efforts, especially France and Britain, especially France, they call upon their colonies to uh, send manpower both to work in factories and farms and also to serve in the armed forces. Um, and implied in this call is the idea that if the, the, the colonial uh, inhabitants, the colonial subjects, do contribute to the war effort, there will be uh, major um, advantages that they will receive after the war is over. Um, and many people throughout the British and French empires believed that, and were, were willing to come to uh, support the war effort. Many did not. Many felt they were just forced, but many did believe that, and many local governments through the colonial empires um, called upon peoples to uh, go and fight. The same was true in the United States. Um, African-American leaders loudly called 
for African American African American young men to join the army, and saw it as a mark of honor to be accepted into the armed forces. Um, and African American communities really embraced this as a chance to prove their equality, as a chance to prove their dignity and their worthiness for full American citizenship. And yet, what happened afterwards was not exactly what people had expected. Uh, America, the summer of 1919 was known as the Red Summer because of, both because of fears of communism, but even more because of uh, the violence of race riots in that summer. Uh, 1919 also saw the largest number of lynchings of any year in American history because there was a fear that African-American soldiers who were veterans would return with ideas about uh, uh, having a new place in society that whites were not willing to grant them. So many of the people, many of the black men lynched in 1919 were actually soldiers or ex-soldiers lynched in uniform. Um, And so the point was to make that, you know, you're not going to be equal, you're not going to receive full and equitable treatment. Um, Now, 20 years later, when World War II breaks out, people haven't forgotten that. You know, it was why Gandhi launched the, launched the Quit India movement. Uh, and basically, even though he was very much opposed to Nazi Germany and everything else, he was not willing to support the British war effort. Uh, and you had similar attitudes in many other people. Um, a. Philip Randolph, who was an African-American, who was the leader of uh, African-American laborers, uh, had said in World War I, rather than fight to make the world safe for democracy, I'd rather fight to make Georgia safe for the Negro, right? And more and more people during the Second World War thought that. But at the same time, you did have a tremendous mobilization, even more so in the Second World War, of colonial troops and colonial subjects. Um, When de Gaulle launches the Free French Movement in 1940, 1941, the first uh, capital of Free France is in colonial Africa because it's the empire that rallies, rallies to the Free French. The majority of Free French troops were colonial subjects. Um, and, um, you know, they really wanted to de-emphasize that, but there was, nonetheless, it was, you know, that was who fought for French freedom. In fact, there was a, a, a bit of a controversy at the end of the war as to who should liberate Paris. Because um, given that the majority of Free French troops were uh, from Africa and Asia, it was probably likely that they were going to be the ones to liberate the city and because the French were demanding the right to liberate the city themselves. And yet, and thanks partly to American pressure, the Americans did not want the idea of black troops liberating Paris. So instead they looked for a white detachment. Well, the white detachment happened to be Republicans from the Spanish Civil War who had fought in in the French resistance. And so you had, you know, detachments and tanks carrying the names of battles of the Spanish Civil War, being the ones that liberated Paris on August 25th, 1944. Um, And at the same time, the French were trying to argue that, well, France liberated itself. Okay, what does it mean to say that the nation liberated itself when it's actually being liberated by colonial subjects, by veterans of the Spanish Civil War? How do you define the nation in that sense, in that context? Uh, and by the way, this was really not recognized until almost like 60 years later by the French government that, you know, it was really foreigners mm-hmm. that had foreigners and colonial subject that that had liberated the nation. Moving forward to the post-war era, you you see your your central tenant of white freedom as coming under fire in this era um, from movements 
particularly such as decolonization and civil rights in the US. Can you tell us about these challenges? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, well, to start with the whole idea of decolonization, you know, one of the great impacts of the Second World War in Europe is, is the end of empire. It became clear that European nations could not retain the same imperial uh, colonial possessions that they had before the war, that it was going to be too much of a drag on the economy. This is the British case, for example, that, you know, if you had to choose between reviving uh, and renewing the nation that had been so uh, devastated by the Second World War and maintaining the colonial empire, uh, you had to go for the, the former. And so the British in particular led the way in uh, with the granting uh, the independence of India and Pakistan in the 19, uh, 1947 and other cases as well. The French case was a bit more fraught because the French in many ways felt that the only way they could maintain great power status was as an imperial nation. Even back in the beginning of the 20th century, people had talked about France as a nation of 100 million Frenchmen, leaving aside women for the moment, but, <laughs> uh, that, be, be that as it may. But, you know, in other words, France was a nation, it was a big nation because of its empire. It was a nation that could compete with the United States and the Soviet Union because of its empire, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you got rid of the empire, well, then what was France, which is simply another small European country? Uh, and that's why the French fought two major ruinous colonial wars, first in Indochina and secondly, and even worse, in Algeria, before they finally gave up the idea that you were going to have uh, an imperial France. So what you end up having is then a new vision of sort of post-colonial or neocolonial uh, nationhood, uh, emphasizing uh, renewed economic ties with the former colonies, uh, often exploitative economic ties, and especially in the case of France, also very important cultural ties, cultural and political ties with uh, the former colonies. Uh, this is especially true in French, um, uh, the former colonies in French West Africa, where um, no sooner did the French flag be, uh, was, was lowered than you had French embassies reopening and French economic experts coming in and really tying the economies of the local areas to uh, the French, uh, French national economy. And in that way, at least, European nations could retain great power status. In the United States, it was uh, somewhat different because it's interesting, only now have historians recently started to look at the relationship between World War II and the civil rights movement, to look at the fact that so many leaders of the civil rights movement, uh, at least male leaders, were World War II veterans. Mm -hmm. uh, and people drew a direct connection between fighting overseas and then fighting at home for liberty. And so um, you know, the, the movement for civil rights in the South becomes a tremendous movement in the 1950s and the 1960s. And it really becomes something that places uh, America's ideals of itself on the line especially because America's also now embracing the role of being a, a great power. And when it talks about resisting Soviet communism and fighting for freedom, the first question American diplomats often get is, well, what about, uh, the, civil, what about the civil rights of African-Americans? I mean, there was a, a joke about um, an American group of tourists at one point being in Moscow and being shown the, the glories of the Moscow subway and going on and on about it and how wonderful it was. And finally, one of the tourists says, well, 
you know, this is a really beautiful subway station, but we've been here for like an hour and yet a train has yet to go by, right? And the response of the tour guide is, well, what about your lynchings in the South, right? <laughs> so uh, this was a national embarrassment for American diplomacy in the 1950s and the 1960s when um, the, the March on Washington happened. In 1963, American diplomats literally filmed cop filmed uh, images of it to show to uh, people throughout the world to say that, yes, yeah, see, Americans do have the freedom and the right to petition their own government. See, America tr truly is a free country. Even if it has racial problems, we still are a country that knows how to deal with those problems. And so, um, and especially with the, the presidency of Lyndon Johnson, more than that of uh, Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson passes some central bills, the Civil Rights Act, for example, the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and nothing was more important, and I would argue is remains so to this day, than the political enfranchisement of African-Americans. Because one of the reasons why slavery, in effect, was allowed to reoccur, in effect, after the end of the Civil War was that African-Americans were prevented from voting, violently prevented from voting. And so enabling African-Americans to vote was a tremendous transformation of American politics, uh, one that is still, you know, at issue to this day, but really emphasized the importance of the civil rights movement. Um, and so in many ways, 1965, the year 1965 is a fundamental uh, turning point uh, in American, modern American history. Not only, not only the triumph of uh, African-American sort of citizenship in many ways, but also the changes in the immigration legislation. Uh, until 1965, immigration was very, very much prioritized as coming from Europe. It was racially coded. With 1965, the new Immigration Act, the racial barriers were removed. And so what you see then is in the next decade or so, a tremendous rise in Latinx and especially Asian immigration into the United States, which has transformed the United States ever since. So. Um, in many ways, 1965 is the, the, the ultimate victory of a vision of freedom that is post-racial. Uh, and yet it doesn't last in some ways because there is also a reaction against this vision that comes out of the Reagan era, that sees the rise of a new Southern conservatism, uh, comes out of Christian evangelism, political Christian evangelism, that fights for continued vision of freedom as ultimately belonging to whites. So, so how would you see that playing through to today? How potent do you think that the idea of white freedom still is today? It's, you know, it's an interesting idea because one of the things to emphasize about the United States, of course, is that the United States has really changed from my, my grandparents' state, for example. The United States is the nation that now at least officially embraces the idea of being a multinational, of being a diverse democracy that embraces the idea at least in theory, of being equal for all people that rejects, in theory, the idea of white freedom. And yet, if you look at the practices of it, there's still many different levels of discrimination, and there are ways in which the civil rights movement failed also. One of the things I'd like to emphasize is that the civil rights movement was in many ways born uh, in the struggle for school desegregation, for the equality, the educational equality of all children. The biggest sort of single example at the beginning was Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision in 1954. Well, if you look at American schools today, in many ways they are as racially segregated as ever. Uh, black students tend to be relegated to inferior schools, to schools that are underfunded, 
and they tend to be grouped overwhelmingly in these schools. And one of the things that caused that is that the movement for integration really culminated in the whole uh, movement for school busing in the 1970s and the 1980s. And this was a movement that was resisted not just by white Southerners, but also white Northerners. Probably the, the biggest example is our current president, Joe Biden, who in many ways made his reputation nationally. He was a senator from Delaware, which is one of the smallest states in the country, made his national reputation by standing against the idea of school busing for integration, so much so that at times he even made alliances with diehard white racist Southerners in order to do this, right? And he has never, by the way, renounced that that uh, the, that viewpoint, even many years later. So um, as one uh, uh, African-American leader said when, when, uh, with regard to the movement around busing, he said, it ain't the bus, it's us. The opposition is not to a school bus, you know, because of course, plenty of American children are bus long distances in rural areas every day without controversy. The, the opposition was to school integration. And so you have America as a society which has proclaimed the, the belief in integration, proclaimed the belief in universal freedom, and yet still is immersed in practices that uh, have made it anything but, that have really made freedom very much a, pro, uh, a prerogative to a large extent of whites. Currently, you have this whole debate about should a critical race theory be taught in American schools. Critical race theory was by the, something that was developed by uh, uh, mostly faculty in law schools and mostly taught in graduate schools. So the idea that you're going to have third grade children being taught critical race theory is rather bizarre, right? Um, and yet you have all these white parents, you have literally several state legislatures passing, law, passing laws that school districts cannot teach, quote, critical race theory, most of whom they do not know what critical race theory is at all. But anything that, for example, says that America structurally has a history of structural racism is therefore seen as anti-white racism and beyond uh, acceptance. So you still have these kinds of reactions. One of the things that's going on in America in general is that we are now facing a, demo a major demographic uh, transition that supposedly in the next 10, 20 years, the majority of Americans will be uh, non-white. Okay. And that raises all sorts of questions. Uh, some people have, some sociologists, for example, and social psychologists have said that there is a major uh, issue of depression among much of the white working class population in the United States, that they tend to have very high suicide rates because they feel that, in effect, white privilege is under threat. But there's another way of looking at it, which is that the idea of what it means to be white has always been very plastic in America. So, for example, uh, the Latinx population, which is the population that is most fueling this uh, rise of the non-white population, sometimes defines itself as white, sometimes it defines itself as non-white. It varies tremendously. Uh, it varies, you know, uh, people from Afro-Cuban background often have a very different perspective of themselves than people from an elite background in Mexico, for example. Um, and so this still remains a very much an open question to this day. Uh, I do think, I tend to be an optimist. In spite of being a historian, I tend to be an optimist. And I, I do think things are moving uh, forward, but I think, and I think precisely the, the, the fact that you have a controversy of a critical race theory of all things suggests that um, there is forward progress in many ways. But I think there's also going to be a lot of resistance, and I think the story is not by any means finished yet. <laughs> That was Tyler Stovall, 
Professor of History and Dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Fordham University. His book, White Freedom, The Racial History of an Idea, is available now published by Princeton. If you found this conversation thought-provoking, we'll be speaking to more Kundal shortlisted authors throughout the next few weeks. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back on Friday. Join us then when Hannah Skoda will be discussing medieval trials by combat. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.